In this episode of Esquire University, I interview attorney Mike Danko about California wildfire litigation. Mike has been handling these cases for years and gives some really good insights as to how someone who is affected by a wildfire can recoup as much of their losses as possible. There are a lot of interesting things that come out of this, including not only are the losses and ancillary losses compensated for, but any attorney's fees at all that are incurred are covered by a wildfire lawsuit. So with that, here's attorney Mike Danko. Hi, today I'd like to welcome trial attorney Mike Danko to the podcast. Welcome. Kind of give us a little bit of your vast experience in this category and kind of let people know that uh, this is something that you've had quite an extensive background in. Sure, Eric. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been handling cases against utilities such as PG&E, uh, cases involving wildfires and explosions really for probably 20 years or, or more. Uh, you know, recently I've, uh, I handled the, uh, the Butte fire in Northern California of 2015 that involved uh, 77,000 acres and over 500 homes. The, uh, the North Bay fires of 2017, which uh, wiped out uh, a number of communities and caused over $10 billion worth of damages. Uh, the 2018 campfire, which wiped out the community of paradise in Northern California working on a, a Southern California fire, such as the Thomas fire. And then in addition, uh, you know, there's a lot of other cases that don't make the news because they involve um, damages that are basically less than uh, uh, $500 million. Still, it's a lot of damages, but it, and, and to, to utility, it's really not. So, uh, and been doing that, like I say, for, for a number of years, and it's an area which unfortunately is, uh, is growing because of uh, climate change, basically. It's uh, before, I, I can say this um, without hesitation, that uh, the utilities basically, as part of their business plan over the years, it has been to allow fires to happen and then deal with the financial consequences after, uh, because fires could and would be eventually put out and that's no longer the case. And so that's why we have kind of now the cataclysmic wildfires that we, we didn't have um, you know, a few years ago and we will have in the future without question. Yeah, now being a Southern California resident you know, for the past 20 years living in LA and San Diego, there seems to be kind of a, just a, a circular pattern where you get dry season. Uh, well, you get the rainy <laughs> season that causes a lot of growth then you get a dry season that dries out everything. And then you get the fires combined with some winds. And, and it just seems to be a pattern that you've probably seen over and over. Right. It's especially the thing that, that really um, is makes the, the, the fire, as you know, from Southern California, the fires that make them uncontrollable is the Diablo winds. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, our system is pretty well equipped to uh, suppress wildfires wherever they occur, wherever they need to be suppressed, but not when you have winds driving them of 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. At that point, they, they, there's just nothing that can be done. They call it you know, a defensible space, create a defensible space. And in the old days, there'd be a fire in the neighborhood. The fire truck would come down the street and they'd look at your house. And if there's a clear area, they'd say, 
That's why they call it a defensible space. We can defend this house. And they would make a stand in your yard and basically protect your house. And so that was important back then. Now the defensible spaces really do nothing because if you have a wind-driven fire, as we now have so frequently, and they're so hot and so intense, it, it, it does nothing to protect your, your, your home. The other thing, which is, which is sad, and this is just comes from representing hundreds of, um, of, of folks, as bad as it is to lose your house, it might be worse to be the only house in the neighborhood that survives because you end up basically having a house on the moon. It's a, it's a moon escape. And these people, they get, they get no uh, compensation. They, they still can't, they can't go down and get, you know, buy milk at the corner store because it's gone. The schools are still are closed and, and they're forced to basically continue to live there. So uh, it's almost as though uh, it, it, as bad as it is to lose your house, um, uh, which and it is, of course, a terrible thing. It may it may be worse to be the only house in the neighborhood that's standing. Yeah, it's amazing how Mother Nature does that. You see that with tornadoes, where a right. tornado goes through a community, and there's like one house on the corner that's still standing, and the rest of the block is decimated. And you obviously see that with with fires as well. And you know, to back up your point, I was. I was in San Diego. I, I want to say it was around 2005, 2006, just where there was a, a massive fire and they closed down Interstate 8. So those who aren't familiar with Interstate 8, we're talking about uh, eastbound and, and westbound lanes, four lanes each, eight lanes total. The fire jumped that. So if you, if you think you have a defensible space by clearing out some brush in front of your house, it, no, these things, it will, it, it has to be an 80 yard jump that this fire made. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's the, the that's um, also now is sort of, I mean, that's as a matter of policy, fire breaks are always very important. Not just, not just around houses, defensible spaces, but fire breaks kind of in the, in the natural terrain. And now they're talking about, well, if you really have a fire break, you need maybe to have a one mile swath of clear cut it, it, because it's because of the, of the issues that we have now. So um, fire breaks, defensible space, it's all, you know, it used to be, for example, like, just like you say, it used to be that the, uh, that the, the highways, basically the interstates were basically boundaries. And that's where, that's where people were, um, that's where they tried to contain uh, fires. And, and now they're, they're not really seen to be very effective at all. Yeah. So, you know, the reason that I wanted to speak to you specifically, you know, we've already kind of established there's not much that you can do as a homeowner. Um, so you really come into play after someone's house has been damaged and you've had a ton of experience uh, with a lot of different fires. So can you kind of explain what it is that you do? Yeah. So, um, you know, what I do is I talk to people and generally represent them after they've either lost their home or their home has been damaged as a result of um, a fire. Uh, and the first thing that most people want to know, or many people want to know is, you know, first of all, first off, you know, they'll t tell me, uh, you know, Mike, I'm not sure that the utility did anything wrong here. So I, I, this is, I don't think this is for me. Um, and it's hard for people to understand, but the way the law is, is that it doesn't matter whether the utility did anything wrong or not. They may have run the utility exactly right. If, however, the facilities, that's the electrical facilities, ignited the fire, 
the utility has to pay for the damage. And people say, ah, oh, that, that just sounds unfair. I, that, why would we, that, that's just unfair. That, that's really a, a bad system. And it's, it's really not, because when you think about it, the idea is that um, you know, we all benefit from the, um, from the facility. We all benefit from electrical distribution and from basically having electricity available to us. And if there's a fire, even if the utility did everything right, and so it was kind of unavoidable, you know, a tree got blown down from three blocks away and hit the wires and started, started a fire. It's like, you know, we're not gonna let that poor guy who lost their home just sit there with a loss. It really needs to be borne, not to punish the utility, but it needs to be borne that loss by everyone who benefits from the system. So that's kind of the first uh, kind of mental hurdle that people uh, have to sort of get over. It's like, this isn't, we're not, uh, initially we're not out to punish the utility. We're not out to be unfair. It's just that everyone benefits from uh, the electrical system. And if the electrical system causes a fire, even though it was well-run system, it's the system that's going to pay. So, um, and that's called, what that's called is a, the legal doctrine, which is a mouthful, but it, anybody who's, who's been through this start get really knows it inside out by the time uh, we come out the other end. It's called inverse condemnation. And everybody's kind of familiar with condemnation. An electrical company can say, hey, we want your property to put wires through it. They take you to court, they take your property, and it's decided how much they have to pay. That's it, it's for the good of the system. And here it's, it's saying, look, the system took my house, but they're not suing me and giving me money for it. So the homeowner sues the system and says, okay, you took my house, you took it by fire, and now you have to pay me what the value of the house was. So in an inverse condemnation, if a fire is started, takes your home through no fault of, of the utility, but it, the, the facilities ignite the fire in some way, then the utility has to pay you the difference in value of your home the day before the fire and the day after. So if your home was worth $300,000 the day before the fire, the day after it's worth $10,000, the utility owes you $290,000, okay? And then in addition, they owe you for the personal property that you lost. So that's pretty straightforward. That's basically, uh, you know, been the law in California for years and years. Um, and uh, that is the law of inverse condemnation. In addition, the thing is that you will also, you're also entitled to your attorney's fees. And that's kind of a big deal because people don't want to be paying attorneys. They're already in the hole. I've lost my house. It's like, yeah, well, sort of don't worry about it because if we sue an inverse condemnation and the utility pays you for the diminution in value in your house, then they also have to add on attorney's fees. And so that's usually gonna be whatever the attorney's contingency fee is, a third or 40%, whatever's being charged is gonna basically get added on to the final bill. So that's a law of inverse condemnation and it's really designed to make sure that the homeowner is made whole if the utility causes a loss of the home. And that's, yeah, that's, that, the, that's the first thing. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important piece. I mean, even let's just say a normal person, personal injury case, an attorney, you'll see, you know, no fee unless we win, no fee unless we win, which is true. The, the attorney has to win, but then you do owe that fee. Where this is truly, 
the the person only has upside here. There's there's no fee, you know, even if you win, that fee goes to the attorney. And I would say just from from talking with, you know, some people who, you know, not everybody understands, you know, the law, like like an attorney or, or somebody like myself who works with attorneys, a lot of people would say, oh, this is just one of those big class actions and the attorneys are going to make money and I'm I'm going to get, you know, a coupon for something at Bed Bath and Beyond. But that's not the case in these these types of of litigations. No, in, in fact, that's frequently people, people because there's so many other people who are involved. Now, let me tell you, I handle cases where the utility burns down one house. Okay, so no, everybody knows that's my case or no case. They they know it's not a class action. But when the utility sparks a fire that burns down a thousand homes, people say, "Oh, this is a this is a class action." And by the way, Mike. Thanks for talking to me, but I don't want to have anything to do with a class action. And this is not a class action. These are not class actions. The big difference is, is a couple of differences. One is that in a class action, um, basically everybody gets the same. They, they get in the mail the same $17 coupon or whatnot. And in this case, everybody's case is handled uh, on its own merits. So you are compensated according to what your loss is. The other thing is in a class action, if a class if, if a class action goes forward, you are included, whether you want to be or not. In these cases, they're called mass torts. In these cases, if you want to be included, you have to get a lawyer. You have to hire a lawyer, and you have to join it. So uh, it's a, it's a big difference. It is it's handled somewhat like a class action in that all the cases wherever they are initially filed, whatever county they're filed in. They all get transferred to one judge, typically, who handles them basically all together in some respects. So it's not like mass chaos. So um, there's some organization that's involved. But they're definitely, you have your individual suit with your individual claims and your individual attorney making those claims. And you get paid or compensated according to your individual loss. So uh, one other thing, I know it sounds like there's really not a lot you can prepare for, but you did mention that if someone's involved in one of these, they also can be compensated for their property. Should someone who lives in a zone that is, you know, has the, the likelihood of maybe experiencing a fire, should they keep some type of a list or is this, you don't have to worry about it until it happens to you kind of thing? I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you that one of the most stressful and difficult things that my clients are asked to do after a fire is to list all of their personal property. They don't like doing that. It's, 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 it takes a long time. It's very difficult. It's emotional. So if you really wanted to prepare, what you would do is not necessarily make a list, but you would go around through your house, closet by closet, drawer by drawer, and video everything. And that's enough to do that. Because in fact, when I ask people to make a list, I ask them to sit down in a room. It's usually them and their spouse. And I say, one of you is gonna close your eyes and you're gonna pretend you're in now the kitchen. You're gonna open that front, the first drawer on the left-hand side and just say what's in the drawer. And the other one is gonna write it all down. So it's if you did that ahead of time and videotape everything that's in your house, however silly it sounds, then that would, you'd be way ahead of the game. I don't know of anybody who actually, there's some people who actually do that, but very few people, very few people are, are, are actually do that. 
Yeah, I can imagine. It's it's like uh, I always tell people, you know, you get over it, get underinsured or uninsured, you know, policy as a driver because you don't think about getting hit by somebody who doesn't have insurance or doesn't have enough insurance because you just you just don't imagine yourself in that catastrophic car accident, but you'll be really happy that you did if it ever happens. Yeah, and um, it's a lot of folks think, you know, well, again, I have insurance, okay? And I'll tell you that by and large, I'm not a fan of insurance companies, but by and large, after a wildfire, the insurance companies treat the insureds fairly well as far as the policy goes. But what people find out, it, this, is, this is again, something I've experienced over and over again. They first talk to me and they say, you know, Mike, thanks for, thanks for talking with me, but you know, I have really good insurance. So I don't think I've, I'm really interested. But then they find out that although the insurance carriers are actually pretty quick to write checks to them, which is very nice, they realize they thought they were insured, but they really were not. So for example, in my ex in, in, when I said, you know, let's say you have a house that's worth $300,000, you say, okay, I've lost it, but I'm gonna get a check for $300,000. And the answer is no, you're gonna get a check for $250,000 because the insurance carrier is only insuring the structures. And the insurance carrier says that your land is worth $50,000. And you say, but my land, I have an appraiser who says the, the, the lot is worth 10,000 at most, especially maybe even less because now it's toxic. Uh, and, the, and you're out, you just don't get that. You don't, and then you don't get the people say, well, you know, I had my grandmother's rocking chair that had no real economic value, but had great sentimental value. I had all my high school trophies. I had, you know, my uh, these pocket watches that that my father gave me. I had a shotgun that my cousin gave me. None of them have economic value. The insurance carrier doesn't give you anything for that. But that, but um, so in 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 the sense, even if you're well insured, insurance really doesn't cover it. And those are all the things that the utility is uh, required to make up the difference. So the utility. So if you have a a a pocket watch or something, you know, that, you know, just has more sentimental value, they'll actually place a value on that for each individual person. Well, let's, 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 let's talk about that. Remember, I said that the, the utility is basically automatically liable if the, um, uh, if they're, if a facility ignites the fire. Well, let's say that the utility did do something wrong. For example, it failed to keep its wires clear of trees or it knew there was gonna be a big windstorm and it failed to turn off the power, or it failed to maintain its electrical lines so they came down too easily in a windstorm. If they do something wrong, then the utility is required to pay for a lot more than it otherwise would. And one of those things it's required to do is to pay people for what, 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 what we switch then, we have another theory instead of inverse condemnation, we have trespass by fire. And if a utility has trespassed upon your property by fire, it must pay you for the emotional distress that's resulting from that trespass and for the nuisance and annoyance of having to deal with the fire. And that includes things like the fact that you lost your grandfather's pocket watch. So they have to pay you for your emotional attachment to that. And in fact, they do pay for that. Then there's something else that they pay for, and this is, this is probably the largest component of any case. And that is, I've been talking about, you know, a $300,000 house and they have to pay you maybe $290,000 after it's burnt down. 
But what if I say, thanks, but I wasn't selling my house to you of all people. I want to rebuild it. I want to restore my house to what it, what it was previously. Well, if they did something wrong, if they were careless or negligent, they have to pay you for that. And what happens is, you know, it costs at least $450,000, $500,000 to rebuild a $300,000 house. And then, it, and people are kind of shocked to hear this, but if you have trees on your property that burned down or were destroyed, the utility has to pay to replace those trees with trees of like size, species, and kind. So that can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it doesn't take long if the utility caused the fire because it was careless to, to, to rack up a, a rebuilding cost well over a million dollars for that $300,000 house. Uh, so that's something that, that you, and of course you may say, well, I have rebuilding insurance. Yet rebuilding insurance will never cover the full cost of rebuilding because it's typically based not in California costs of rebuilding, but rather the national averages. And insurance carriers do not pay for trees. They generally either don't pay at all or they cap it at like 1500 bucks a tree where one tree to replace can be 70, 80, 90, $100,000. So that's one of the things that we do. If you lost your house, you say, hey, I, I think I might like to rebuild. We get contractors to figure out what it costs to rebuild. We get arborists in to figure out what it would cost to retree your property. And then we, we uh, quantify the emotional distress and the annoyance factor. Because I'll tell you, every client who's been through this, they, they're, they're immediately given a new job, a job they don't want. And that's dealing with a fire that typically takes about two years and it's almost a full-time job. So we quantify all of that and then we basically uh, present a bill to PG&E and above and beyond what your insurance uh, would pay. And it's usually pretty darn significant. So what would you say, and just a general number, unless you, you knew it, of the number of people who, who opt out, either they say, oh, my insurance will take care of it, and they really miss out on all these other economic uh, restitutions that they would get, or they just say, oh, maybe in the back of their mind, they're like, oh, this is the government. I can't sue the government, or this is just a class action. I'm not going to get anything. What percentage on any particular fire do you think that is? It's, it's, it's a large, first off, you have people who say, uh, I don't want to get involved until I know that PG&E has done something wrong. So let's wait till Cal Fire, the state investigative agency, determines whether PG&E did something wrong. So you have those folks. And I, I explained to them, you know, Cal Fire, basically, it's going to take them up to a year. They, their, their report their conclusion is not admissible in court. It has no usefulness at all. We, they, if, if they find against PG&E, we can't use it. And PG&E will say, we just respectfully disagree. And if they find that uh, PG&E caused the fire, we can't use it. So, or, or the fact that PG&E didn't cause the fire, we can't use it. so it has no meaning whatsoever. So it just puts people behind. That's, that's one, I'd say we probably 20% of the folks who should be suing or should be joining the, the litigation don't because they want to wait for Cal Fire to come out with its report. Um, then you get, of the people who do join, um, the biggest, uh, where they leave the most money on the table is 
mostly for emotional reasons, they say, you know, I just, I cannot, I, I'm not interested in rebuilding. I am moving to Texas, you know, or Nevada, um, someplace where there are no trees. Uh, and if you do that and you sell your lot, now worth $10,000, you are no longer entitled to the costs of restoring that property to its previous condition. So that's where the, and of course, when PG&E finds out you sold your lot, they just jump up and down and with joy because now they're at the most they're gonna have to pay you is that $290,000 figure minus whatever you get from insurance rather than perhaps the seven figures that we're talking about because they no longer have to be concerned about restoring your property to its previous condition. So that's, that's um, and I'd say that happens uh, roughly half of the folks um, who, who sign on before we get to the end, sell their properties, even, even though they know they're leaving a lot of money on the table. They just- Who are they selling it? Are they selling it to the PG&E? No, they sell it. Uh, PG&E has tried that in the past because they, they would, they, what they would do, <laughs> what PG&E would do, would they buy up some of the properties at um, artificially high prices. They give like a few people a lot of money for their burnt out lots so that they, they can say when somebody else appraises the other burnt out lots, they say, oh, we have comparables here. <laughs> what do you know? Who would have thought a burnt, burnt out lot is actually worth quite a bit of money? No, it's just because PG&E has bought a few. They don't, they don't do that anymore because they were kind of found out. But what happens is you have speculators come in and the speculators will say, you know, I'm going to buy this entire street. And the reason why they want to do that is because if I buy the entire street, I can redevelop and rebuild the entire street, uh, you know, basically all at once and it's cheaper. So those are typically the people who come in and uh, speculators. And even though people, this is, what, this is what happens all the time. People say, I know my property is only worth $10,000. Mike, I would never sell it. I don't need $10,000. Don't you worry, I'm not gonna sell this property. But then a developer comes in and offers them $14,000. And they say, I'm tired of holding on to this property. I'm paying taxes on the property, even though I don't have any services. I just want to cut the cord. This guy's offering me more than the property is worth. It's $14,000. I'm going to take it. And I said, well, you're, you're, you know, you're kissing goodbye, the cost of rebuilding. And they just say, I, I just, I, I can't do it. And so, and that's, that's pretty common. It's about, like I say, maybe 50% of the owners. One, one of the costs I don't think we covered yet was, okay, the house is burned down, where does the family live? And, you know, I'm assuming people will stay in hotels or maybe they'll get rental property. Who's, who's paying that fee and, and when? Um, so th there's, there's two things going on. One is um, if you have insurance, uh, insurance will pay you what's called alternative living expenses, usually for up to 24 months. It's a fixed amount, but they'll say, yeah, well, it, we'll get you a place to live. And it may be, you know, Best Western, it may be a rental. And many of my clients are saying, will say, heck, you know, I, this adjuster is really a nice guy. He got me a really nice place. And I say, yeah, and you have exactly $60,000 of benefits for ALE. That is going to run out. He doesn't care. He would have gotten you the Taj Mahal. He has written off basically those benefits. So he found a place and put you in it. And what are you going to do in 10 months when it's gone? So um, that's, that's if you have insurance. If you don't have insurance, uh, then you are basically on your brother-in-law's couch 
uh, eventually, and that gets to be um, pretty unpleasant for folks. Of course, you know, in the course of litigation, what we do is we are seeking from PG&E money for the annoyance, the inconvenience of, of being displaced, uh, and also for the if you if you end up coming out of pocket to recover that um, as well. So if I understand the, the this in totality, if someone has been affected by a wildfire, uh, it's it's just in their best interest to join this mass tort litigation. And they what you'd mentioned, they have to they have to hire an attorney, whether it's you or, or somebody else. But the best thing for them for the financial value replacement, sentimental, they have to get involved with the litigation in order to get all these benefits. Yeah, and I and I tell folks, you know, let, let's go back to you know, let, let let's go back to my example of, of somebody who's who has that three hundred thousand dollar house. It's burnt down, but they they did get a two hundred fifty thousand dollar check from their insurance carrier, and they say, "Is this worth my time, Mike?" And I say, "You know, look, at, at the worst that I see is forty thousand dollars, and it's not going to take basically anything." you know, from of your time very much at all. And you're not going to have to pay attorney's fees. So I don't exactly know, Mr. Smith, what you have coming to, uh, to you. But unlike most other cases, whatever you have coming to you under the law, you're going to get. It's not the case, you know, like, yeah, by the time the experts and the time the attorneys, I'm going to get a pittance. No, whatever you're entitled to, you're going to get. And there's, there's no downside. So um, it, it, it's, it's, it takes a while for people to realize, oh, there's there, oh. And, and the things that they'll ask me is like, how much time is going to be required of me? And it's like, it's really not that much. It's maybe a total, you have to, you have to talk to, to me or my paralegals. You have, to, you have to give us some documents, maybe fill out some forms, but it's really not more when you add it all up than maybe, you know, two or three or four days total in most cases. So, you know, unless your time is worth, you know, $10,000 an hour or whatever, it's, it's, it's generally well worth your time to get involved. Yeah, and, and then one thing I try to, would, we can end on unless you've got something else uh, that you'd like to talk about is, when, just because I've been in this legal world for a long time, you realize that there are people who are experts in a specific type of area. And you'll talk to someone who says, oh, well, my neighbor's an attorney and they, they might be a family law attorney or they might be a criminal defense attorney. You kind of give, you know, some insight. It's like, this is something you've, you've studied, you've been so part of, like, what's the advantage of someone coming to you if they've been affected by a wildfire? Because, um, uh, you know, we've talked already about some different theories uh, in, from inverse condemnation to trespass by fire to, uh, you know, getting value for your, uh, sentimental items and so forth. It's a very, very specialized area of law and you really do need a specialist. And one of the things that you'll find is that certainly PG&E or whatever utility is on the other side, they have nothing but specialists doing this and they have their tricks. They have their uh, strategies to minimize what you have coming to you. And so it really makes sense to have someone who has done this before, who has all the legal theories down, has all the strategies down. Uh, for example, you know, I tell my, my clients to think twice before they sell their property. And I know many other lawyers, a local lawyers, I can do this for you, never even 
mentions that to the to the uh, client, and the client ends up thinking it doesn't make any difference, and ends up selling and, and their property because they don't want to be bothered with it anymore. That costs them again hundreds of thousands of dollars. That decision, so it's it's it isn't a specialized area um, that you want to go in that you want to deal with. The other thing is that when it comes time to resolve the cases, uh, you are going to get the best result if your attorney has actually taken one of these cases to trial against the utility. The utilities immediately sniff out, this attorney is not going to go the distance and they will stonewall the attorney uh, and basically they're able to settle the case cheap. If the uh, a utility knows that this attorney is going to take, has taken it to trial before and won, then uh, it's gonna be a different, different deal. And that's, that's, there, there are, there are few attorneys out there now who do have pretty good experience in uh, wildfire cases, but there are very, very few that have actually taken a utility to trial and won. So that's, that's uh, one of the things that you ought to be looking for uh, if you're, when you're looking for an attorney, especially because yeah. it doesn't matter, the utility is going to end up paying the, the attorney's fees. So you might as well get the best. Yeah. And I, and I think that that point can't be emphasized enough. The, the fact that a, a lot of attorneys will show we are trial attorneys. And what that means to the layperson who might be listening to this is if an insurance company knows that you don't have the skill set or the finances to take it to trial, they can just push you down the road. They can just keep kicking the can. But the threat of trial means that they could pay a lot more than they would have to do if they just settled. So if someone goes to you, they that that PG&E or whoever it is, they know that, okay, we can't play games here because if Mike takes us to trial, we're going to write even bigger checks than if we would have just settled for what they wanted. Right. And they have another issue as well, which is nobody really knows what these cases are worth. So if I take it to trial and get a jury verdict that is a good one, um, it becomes, I just not only done something for my client, I've done it for all the other cases as well. So that's really what utility doesn't want to do is they don't want basically a rising tide to float all the boats. So they end up basically paying the trial attorneys, people with real experience, uh, they end up paying their clients more to basically keep it out of court. Well, Mike, I really appreciate your time today. And it was fascinating for me. I, I've, I've known about this type of litigation for a while, but I, I learned a bunch of new things just talking to you today. So thank you for your time. Pleasure, Eric, anytime.